Good morning. I'm glad you think it's a good morning. Let's hope you still think it's a good morning when I get done. So we are still in the book of Matthew, still going through the Sermon on the Mount. Looking at section uh, chapter 5, verses 38 through 48, where Jesus in this passage talks about retaliation against your enemies and then follows it up with an explanation about loving your enemies. So let's read this together. We'll see what the Lord can show us this morning. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time this morning in his word. Father, thank you. Thank you that you love us enough to say hard things to us or hard things for us to hear. Thank you that you love us enough to show us how to be more like you, to be sons and daughters of God, transformed and changed from something else into a new person, into a new identity for a real purpose. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at these two passages today, that you would open up our eyes, that you would help us to understand what it is you're trying to say to us, what it means for us as we walk through the rest of this day and the next week ahead and the weeks after that. Just help us to understand who you've created us to be so that we would reflect you and somehow draw others towards you by being who you've created us to be. Thank you for your love and thank you for your mercy. I pray specifically now, Lord, that your spirit would be powerfully at work, that it would rest powerfully upon me, that I would speak words only what you would have me say to every person listening this morning, and that each person listening, that they would hear the very words that you need them to hear, because this is the words you want them to hear from you. And we ask it, Father, in Jesus' holy name, amen. So Jesus starts out talking about this whole thing of, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And it's kind of an odd thing. I mean, is it, this is one of those things that we've all heard all of our lives, right? 
eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You hit me, I hit you back. But yet, even though we've heard it all our lives, we still don't really understand where it comes from. The genesis of this whole concept of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And how it got from, like we've all seen these memes, right, of how it started and how it is today. You're on social media, right? You see these things about how, how it all started, but how it is now. This is kind of one of those moments with Jesus here in this passage. This, this, where, you know, where they are and that hillside on the Sea of Galilee with this concept of what it means to have an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That, that's, that's, that's not the way it started. This thing got off base badly. And how did that happen? Well, we have to start at the beginning. You guys have been around me long enough to know that we're going to get a hefty dose of a bunch of other passages. So it starts by us all turning to Exodus chapter 21. We're going to read verses 22 through 25. There are three places in the Old Testament where this phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, is specifically said exactly that way. And we're going to look at all three of them. The first one is Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 through 25, where Moses is talking to the people about how they are to handle certain kinds of conflicts. So starting in verse 21, 22, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, meaning that they are born, But there is no harm to the infants. The one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him. And he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, meaning some something happens to the infants as a result of this physical conflict, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So here in this first passage, Moses is laying it out pretty clearly that when we have an event that involves the wrongful death of at that moment an unborn child, then the law of Moses says that the perpetrator of this crime must pay eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. This is what justice looks like under the Mosaic law. Okay, okay, all right, fine, got that. Now, let's turn to the second place we hear this phrase. Leviticus chapter 24, verses 17 through 20. For whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal life shall make it good life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury has been given, a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel and bought out of the camp the one who had cursed, and they stoned him with stones, and thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. 
The backstory to this last verse is there was an individual who was a mixed ethnicity in the people of Israel. I was wandering in the wilderness and he blasphemed against the name of the Lord God. And so they were like, oh, what do we do about this? And so they went, Moses went to talk to God and said, this is what you do. But in the process of giving the answer, the Lord expanded more than just how to treat this one offense with this one individual. He expanded and talked about the whole idea of justice, the idea of how do you reconcile the damage done by another person with malicious, willful intent. So here in this case, he's saying that if it's a malicious, willful intent to cause harm and the person dies, then that perpetrator must die, the death, the death penalty. And in the case of animals that were harmed maliciously, not, and this seems to be, in the context seems to be specifically, Stan has a mule and I maliciously kill his mule as a way to harm him. I have to restore a mule for a mule, right? Doesn't seem to be the case that you're talking about how necessarily mistreating of animals that you're, are your own. But that's probably more detail than you really want. Anyway, the idea of, of, of rest, really restitution is often a case here in these passages. Now, the last one, Deuteronomy chapter 19. Chapter 19, verses 16 through 21. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who are in the office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. You shall not pity. You shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So, what are we to make sense of here? Clearly, this is the idea of a, a false witness, someone who is intentionally lying about the person that they have a conflict with under the idea that they're trying to gain some kind of advantage or they want to maliciously slander this person, something like that. And the Mosaic law says whatever it was they were hoping to have accomplished through their lying, do that to them. So, the idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is the wrongful death or severe injury to unborn children in the womb, maliciously killing another human being or their animal, replacing in restitution for that, and then the false witness. Okay, that all seems fine. So what's the problem? Why is this an issue here for Jesus today? Well, it seems to be the case that once again the Pharisees had twisted things and contorted it to where the idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth had nothing to do with what the Mosaic Law set it out to do. First off, think back to these passages we just read in Leviticus, in Exodus, in Deuteronomy. Whom? is executing the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth justice. The judges, 
the people responsible for justice within the society. It said nothing about the person who was wronged taking out retaliation against that person. It never says in those passages anything about the victim retaliating against and gaining revenge against their attackers. It is always those who are responsible for administering justice are the ones who execute the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But by the time we get to the Sermon on the Mount, by the time Jesus is standing on the shores of the Sea of Galilee in front of this large crowd some 2,000 years later, things are all messed up. Nowadays, it's like you don't even have to bother going to the judges. Somebody smacks you. Somebody knocks your tooth out, you just turn right around and knock their tooth out right there on the spot. Wait a minute, that's not, wait, no. That's not what the Mosaic Law said. That's not how this works. But that's what had developed. That's the kind of mindset that had started to set in. And so when Jesus confronts all this in this moment, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, you know, you guys have really kind of got this backwards. You've taken a statement that we made, meaning the Trinity, we made about how justice is to be handled and turned it into an excuse and justification for revenge and retaliation. That is not what we said. And instead, you need to be this. So what Jesus is then telling us is that that we need to be merciful and gracious when we are wronged. That's the summary of this, this paragraph. But that's just not what I want to do when someone ticks me off. Right? I mean, we, we, all, we all can understand this, right? Somebody's messed with you, I'm going to mess with them. It's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's what the Bible says. Wait, 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 no, wait. You're guilty of, you're, you're falling into the same trap that everyone had fallen into, well, almost everyone had fallen into in this passage when Jesus stood there that day on the side of that mountain. Probably one of the most clear examples in my mind of this is the, in modern day at least, of course, I guess it's not really quite modern day, but the feud between the Hatfields and McCoys. Right? We've all heard the stories. We've all heard, or most of us have heard, the various pieces of the story about what happened. You had William Anderson, known by his nickname Devil Ancy, Hatfield, living on one side of the Tug Fork River in West Virginia. And then you had Randall McCoy living on the other side of the river in Kentucky. And somehow these families got started not liking each other. The whole backstory is unclear. The evidences that would document this are not there, but somehow prior to the Civil War, these two families the Hatfields with uh, William who had 13 children and Randall who also had 13 children got into some kind of dislike towards each other, something we don't even quite understand. 
And then it just kind of festered and boiled. And then then along came the spark. The spark was really the Civil War for the Hatfields and McCoys. The, uh, The McCoys on the Kentucky side decided that they would fight for the Union, the Hatfields. On the West Virginia side, decided to fight for the Confederacy. And it just fueled even more. And if anyone who's familiar with that period of American history, the the intensity of the anger and resentment between the two, between the North and the South, didn't just fester and boil over. Well, it boiled over as a, as in the Civil War, but it festered for decades prior to that. The same thing with the Hatfields and McCoys. And then, then, even after the war, a war with 600 plus thousand deaths wasn't enough to put an end to it. That resentment and that anger and that desire for retaliation continued after the war in many places. And it seems to be the kind of the flashpoint for the Hatfields and the McCoys. Now, people will point to that the physical flashpoint that started the feud between these two families was when when Randall McCoy accused one of uh, William Hatfield's relatives of stealing one of his hogs. And then from that, things just went crazy. By crazy, I mean that in 1882, you had one of the Hatfields was essentially ambushed by three of the McCoys. And, and by ambushed, I mean he was stabbed 26 times with a knife. And then because that wasn't enough, they shot him. I, mean, I don't know about you, but 26 stabs is usually pretty fatal. I'm not going to survive 26 stabs. But so that went. And then in retaliation for that, the Hatfields uh, kidnapped and executed three McCoy brothers. Then that escalates into the point where on New Year's Day in 1888, a group of Hatfields went to the McCoy house early in the morning and started shooting into the house. Wife, Randall, wife, kids, no chance to escape. And in fact, two of the children were killed. And as a result of that, finally, law enforcement started to get involved. But it even gets bigger than that. This got so out of control that the governors of Kentucky and West Virginia threatened to send in the militias to squelch this feud and get things under control. It even got so out of control that the sheriff of Pike County took a posse, crossed over into West Virginia, chased down the 
the individuals who were participating in the event on the New Year's morning shooting, arrested them, brought them back into Pike County, Kentucky, to hold them for murder trials against the young daughter, Alfie, that was killed. And then the state of West Virginia sued the state of Kentucky, saying that those men had been kidnapped and were illegally taken, and therefore they couldn't be held for trial. It even went all the way to the Supreme Court. The United States Supreme Court had to get involved in the Hatfield and McCoy feud. That's how out of control this gets. All because of retaliation. Donald Rumsfeld, when he was Secretary of Defense, made a comment during the Iraq War about someone was asking him, so if you do this and then the American military does this and this, what about this happening? What will happen there? What will happen there? What will happen here? He was famous for making the comment, says, what you're trying to do is predict the bounce of the ball. So if I drop this ball right here, it's a pretty easy prediction. It's going to pop back up right into my hand. But what if I bounce it off the chair? How many bounces can I predict? You can't. You can predict one or two, but I can't predict the sixth or seventh bounce of the ball. I have no idea where this is going after the first couple of bounces. Randall Hatfield did not know what was going to happen because he accused one of the McCoys of stealing a hog. Now, the subsequent evidence suggests that maybe he didn't actually steal the hog. At the end of the day, he wasn't even really, it's possible that he wasn't even guilty of the crime that McCoy had accused him of. But yet, look at, who could have predicted that saying, look, you steal, that's my hog you've stolen, that's my hog. You're one of them rotten, stinking Hatfields. I know what y'all are. You stole that hog. He could have never predicted that it would result in seven years later, no, eight years later, a band of five to six guys showing up at his house on New Year's morning and shooting it up to the point that both of his kids were killed, or two of his kids were killed. He couldn't predict that. But that's what happened. That's the danger of revenge and retaliation. And it's especially dangerous because in our, in our drive to receive and get our revenge and our retaliation, we don't think beyond the next step. Our judgment, our ability to think is clouded. And as a result, we aren't thinking clearly when we try to execute our revenge and retaliation. And then a more modern example would be the mob violence we've seen in the 60s and 70s and early 80s in the major cities, the Sicilian mob and the mafia. You take out this mob boss, we take out three of yours. You take out three of ours, we take out your whole operation. But there's a pattern here. We, look, we don't even have to go to... We can just look in First Samuel for the same nonsense. The unnecessary war that developed between the house of David and the house of Saul after Saul and Jonathan were killed at Geboah, on Mount Geboah. This whole mess goes on. And, it, and, the, and the ironic part was 
none of Saul's descendants were actually trying to start this conflict with the house of David. It was the people who served under Saul, the commander of the army, that was doing this. Then it spreads from just the house of Saul and the house of David to Abner and Joab, the commanders for the different armies. Abner kills Joab's brother in combat, by the way, giving him warning, look, don't do this, turn aside, don't chase me. Asher does it anyway. Abner kills Asher. And here we are, like two decades later almost, and Abner comes to David to make a, a truce. And David says, okay. And then Joab, who comes in from another, another adventure, says, finds out that Abner was there and David let him get away. And what does Joab do? He goes and chases Abner down and kills him in cold blood right there in the middle of the street. Why? Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You killed Asher, I'm killing you. This is, this is not what the Mosaic Law said. What are you doing, Abner? So what we see is once again in the Old Testament, in the feud of the Hatfield and McCoys in the 1880s, and then again with the mob violence in the 70s and 80s, we're not dealing with ex excellent characters. Look, Camille and I grew up in the Appalachian culture. You know, in our culture today, someone gets a nickname because they did something funny. But in our culture, you get a nickname that describes who you are. They are identity tags. And when so... William Anderson, Devil Ancy Hatfield, Devil Ancy, he didn't get that because he liked deviled eggs. This was a mean person. He got the name Devil for a reason. This was his nature. It was in his nature to do this. Just like it's in my nature to want my revenge and my retaliation. But yet here comes Jesus. Here comes Jesus once again messing up everything. We've got a good system here, Lord. Well, you've got to mess it up. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. What? What? What are you talking about? And then... And if anyone sues you for your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if you're forced to go one mile, go with him two miles. What, what, what are you doing? This, this is not how we do things, Jesus. And why are you telling us to do it different? Why are you telling us do this different? This whole idea of slapping, suing, and forced service that Jesus is now confronting and turning upside down is he's calling his disciples to be peacemakers and men and women of noble character even when they're dealing with scoundrels and cheats once again you just have to look back at the beatitudes when you read the beatitudes for the first time you have no idea how much jesus is messing up everything but here he says it Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons of God. He didn't say nothing about blessed are the revengers and the retaliators, for they are obeying the Mosaic law. He said the exact opposite. 
Really? I'm supposed to just let that happen. Well, yes. When we're dealing with conflicts, however, I would make the case to you this morning, if I had time, that these commands do not extend to the concepts of physical abuse and wrongful accusations. Jesus isn't saying just sort of lay down and take it when someone's falsely accusing you of something. But yet at the same time, he's saying, don't take it out of their hide. When they are wrongly accusing you, don't demand an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth once it's been shown that they are making a false accusation. Instead, he's saying something different. And then the amazing thing is here we are in giving and borrowing, and he's saying the exact same thing, calling his followers to be generous and merciful even to their own material harm. This does not include, I don't think, it includes enabling addicts or those who are swindlers. It is giving genuinely helpful aid even when everyone else has reached their limit on trying to help this person. And even that has its limit too. But Jesus is saying, go beyond what other people would do. Go that extra mile of giving even to the point of material harm. Okay. All right. All right. This is a big ask, Jesus. This is a big ask, not big ask, not to go eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But you're Jesus, and I know that you are, you are the Messiah. So, okay, this is a really big ask, but I'm going to follow you on this one. Oh, but that's not enough. That's, there's, wait, there's more. Now, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. <sighs> really? I mean, isn't it just enough that I'm merciful and gracious to my enemy? Now you're telling me I got to love him too? Are you kidding me? Everybody knows that you hate your enemy. Look, we've done this for decades, centuries here, Jesus, and now you're telling us we can't. What is up with this? Well, what's up with this is once again, they had twisted the Mosaic law. Leviticus 19, verses 9 through 18. I'm sorry, I was going to skip it, but we got to read it. The heading, most of your Bibles will say this right above verse 9, is love your neighbors as yourself. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, but you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the soldier, and I am the Lord your God. Okay? Loving my neighbor, got that part. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to another. You shall not swear by your name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of the hired work shall not remain with you all night to the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer. 
You shall not go around as a slander among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's where this whole idea of loving your neighbor as yourself comes from. Right? And, and what was Jesus railing against? He's railing against this idea that you shall love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Did anybody see anything in that whole passage? Look, I read a very long passage from Leviticus chapter 19, and it never said nothing about hating your enemy. It said, love your neighbor, do what's right, and it stopped there. It never said anything about hating your enemy. So where did this idea come from that you are to love your neighbor but hate your enemy? Who added that to the Mosaic Law? People who wanted justification for hating their enemy. That's who did it. Just like today, when we add stuff to the law or to the Bible and deny that it's there, or deny that it's there, I want justification for what I want to do. Moses said nothing about hating your enemies. In fact, the Mosaic Law told the Jews to do the opposite of what had been taught to them by the Pharisees in Exodus chapter 24. Chapter 24, verses 4 and 5. I'll let you read it for yourself later. But it it tells them to be kind to their adversaries. So why does Jesus call us to this extravagant form of mercy and self-restraint? Why? Why do I have to do it this way, Jesus? Why? Then the real gut kicker. This is the gut, for me, I don't know about you, but for me, this is the gut kicker in this passage. Oh, thankfully, I can't find it. Oh, that means I don't have to worry about it, right? Oh, no, verse 45. Chapter 5, verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So, you're calling me to this kind of radical, extravagant form of mercy and self-restraint because that's how the sons of God and the daughters of God are supposed to act. Yes, that's correct. Fine. Why do, why, why, why do the sons and daughters of God have to act this way? Why do we have to do it this way? Because this is how God acts with us. It's kind of hypocritical to want my revenge and my retaliation against my human enemy when God in His mercy and grace would not exact His revenge and retaliation against me for my rebellion. That's true. It's hypocritical to think that and feel that way or think that way. It's human to feel that way, but it's hypocritical to think that way. But that's not it. It's not just that we doesn't want us to be hypocritical. He wants us to reflect Him. He wants us to reflect to the human world around us the divine nature of His supernatural Godship and supernatural love. Look, we're wrapping, we're at the end of chapter 5. Next week we start chapter 6. And you know what I, I realized this morning? 
It didn't hit me until this morning, just before I came over here. Every single piece of chapter five are identity statements. This, look, you are my people now. You are my followers. You have been implanted with the spirit. You are transformed. You are now this. This is who, chapter five, this is who you are. Yes, you have heard that it was said you shall not murder. Going back to to verse 21. Yet what you were is the beginning of each of these passages. When he says you have heard it was said, that's what you were. But I say to you, this is who you are now. Why did he expect us to act this way? Because we are new creations. We are transformed. We are his people And this is who we are. And just like Devil Ancy reflected who he was in his actions and the name showed itself to be true, so also you and I are different people. And now we have to act in a way that reflects who we really are. Sons and daughters of the living God who has been merciful and gracious to us. Therefore, we can be merciful and gracious to our enemies. Okay, fine. Fine. We'll do it your way, Jesus. But then the rubber hits the road. And we leave here singing in joyfulness in the Lord. And the first thing we do is we find some news story that crosses our eyes. And we suddenly forget And we start saying things about our enemies. We start wishing things on our enemies. One of the most difficult things for me to deal with has been this phrase in our culture of let's go Brandon. And its predecessor. I feel exactly that. But apart from the issue of respect for the office of the president... Jesus doesn't let me say that. He doesn't let me agree with that mindset or that hatred coming out. So what what am I supposed to do with that? What are we supposed to do with that? We feel it. We want it. But Jesus says, don't go there. But everybody else is doing it. The whole culture is filled with it. At least that's what it feels like. And you can pick your subject. You can pick your... I mean, look. Watch football on Sunday afternoon and you can see the hatred of Broncos fans for the Rams, for the Raiders, for the Chiefs. Thank you. I was trying to remember. could pull it up. Thank you. Or you can see the Rockies fans' hatred for the Dodgers and the Cardinals. Basically anybody that beats us, which is everybody. But Jesus says we can't go there. What am I supposed to do with that? What am I supposed to do with all of this? I don't know. I don't know. All I know is that when the Spirit convicts me of this, I have to run to Him 
and say, I can't, I can't fight this on my own. I, this is so deeply ingrained. It feels like it's part of my DNA that I can't fight this desire by myself. Jesus, please help me. That's the, I, that's all I got for you. Run to Jesus and ask him to help you with the hatred desires of our hearts. That's all I got. I got nothing better. I got, I got nothing better because I don't know anything better. And then pray like the Dickens for the Spirit to transform our hearts. To start to see our enemies the way He sees them. That's, that's, that's all I know. But that's just really hard. You know, being, being a follower of Jesus is becoming stinkingly hard every day. And it gets stinkingly harder every day. But, but what other choice do I have? I mean, sure, I could always choose to take the easy road and just have fun and do things the way I want to do it. But where's that going to go? Where, where's that ball going to bounce? The only bounce I can trust is the one that says, is the one where I'm doing it the way he asked me to do it and asking him to give me the, the strength and the transformation. Because I understand, Jesus, I understand you're saying that I'm supposed to do this because I'm one of the sons of our Father in heaven. But I'm not a very good son. I'm not all, I'm not all the way like, I, I'm not all the way there. And I, and I guess you guys aren't either. You still struggle with this. And the reality is, is we can struggle through it. We can fight through this, fighting against ourselves instead of against our enemies. And the irony is, is according to the, to the economy of heaven, by fighting against ourselves instead of fighting against our enemies, we actually win the war against our enemies. I don't know, it doesn't make sense. It does not make sense on a balance sheet. But that's the economy of heaven. And the life of Jesus shows that it's true. So I trust that. Because I got nothing better. And that's my that's my plea to you today, my brothers and sisters. When when the conflict with your enemies, whether real or imagined, whether person by name or just a abstract entity out there in the news, do not do not war with them, but war within yourselves at the hatred we have and then enjoy the victory. Even if we have to wait until that day when we stand at the gates of heaven and enter in because of what Jesus has done for us, we have to wait even to that day for victory and to enjoy the victory, then so be it. This isn't easy, but it's necessary. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for 
everything you've told us here in this chapter 5 of the book of Matthew, even when it's been hard to hear, even when it feels impossible to live out, thank you. Thank you for telling us the things we don't want to hear, but thank you also for giving us your spirit and for transforming us through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross and trusting in you as our Lord and Savior and Messiah for eternal hope and glory and transformed living in this life. In Jesus' name, amen.